What's up, Charleston? This is the Healthy Charleston Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Eve Gigi, where we talk all things health-related. We're going to talk about all sorts of health information, as well as, hopefully, clear up all sorts of terrible health misinformation. What's up, everybody? This is Eve with the Healthy Chawson Podcast. Today, I am joined by Aaron Embry. He's a physical therapist. He's also the SCAPTA president. SCAPTA stands for the South Carolina American Physical Therapy Association. He's involved in research, also uh, treating patients as well. Honestly, one of my favorite podcasts. We get into some really cool ideas, concepts, discussions about physical therapy, how it can have an impact on our community, what the future of the profession is. He also had an excellent question at the end that really honestly opened my mind a little bit to what kind of impact even something small like a podcast or a small physical therapy practice like ours can actually have on a community on the Charleston community in general. So without further ado, here is Aaron Embry. What's up everybody? We got Aaron Embry here, SCAPTA president, going for his PhD, all things uh, not on the clinical side of PT, which which I think is cool. So what's up, man? Welcome. What's up? How are you? It's good to be here. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped about this conversation. Yeah. So were you... A year behind me in school? When did you graduate? 2006. Yeah. So it was yeah. a year behind you with the, the masters. We, we were the lucky class that was tricked. Don't tell them I said this is industry yeah. secret. They told us when we got in. So we, you started in three. We started in four, 2004. Yeah. And, and we started in the summer. By December... And we had asked all summer, are you guys start transitioning to the, the doctor program? Right, no, right. no, 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 not at all. And by like December, they were like, oh yeah, we're pleased to welcome next year our new incoming doctorate class. And so yeah, we were the we were the last master's class, um, graduated in 2007, and then they have a they offered a transitional doctorate in 2008 for MUSC grad. So I went back and and did that and. Did some other things, and now here we are. <laughs> I elected not to do that. I mean, it was it. A lot of people, I would say, took advantage of it, but some didn't. Um, it worked out for me because I also got um, grant funded or something to work on a master's in clinical research at the same time. So it was a pre-doctoral K thirty-two or T thirty-two, some kind of award. Um, through MUSC, so I got to work on the DPT and the Master's of Clinical Research at the same time in one year, get it all done in one year, so. That's cool. I I mean, there's, people don't know this, like physical therapy, there's like a lot of different ways you can leverage that degree and a lot of cool ways you can do that. Did you always know you wanted to do some sort of research piece of things? Did you think you wanted to do more clinical? Because I mean, you're very sports-minded, you're athletic, like, what made you like, I'm going to go do research. I'm going to go be in the political side, which is my worst nightmare. Well, that about. also. <laughs> it depends on what answer you want to get today. So right. part, of, part of what I'll say is, yeah, PT is very dynamic in what you want to do and what you think you want to do. Um, when I was in school, probably more grad school than anything, undergrad, I was, I mean, I was, my second half of undergrad, I was a good student. <laughs> the first half, not so much, but grad school, um, I really started realizing I would be the kid that would sit in the front of the class and everybody hated because I would ask a ton of questions because I just wanted to know why are you able to say that? What's the evidence to be able to back that up? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it annoyed several of my classmates, but oh well. Um, and so that's when I started to realize I think maybe research is a thing that I should look into. And it just was, it just happened to work out that they were doing that Master's of Clinical Research right afterwards. Um, with the PT and it just, I enjoyed it. It's tough. It's a different lifestyle. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I worked clinically for a while as well though. I'm still doing a little bit of clinic work now, but, um, that's probably when I started to think research might be something I might be interested in. So what did you pick as your focus? So right now <clears throat> what I'm working on for my dissertation project, I'm working with lower extremity amputees. I'm focusing primarily on below knee amputees. Um, Looking at, my mentor's a big biomechanist, Jesse Dean. He's 
insanely brilliant, to be quite honest with you. Um, he does a lot with biomechanics. And I think that's, a, that's something that we in our profession need to make sure that we're really in touch with is what biomechanics actually are. Ooh, I want to think um, about that. <laughs> we had, a, for a long time, APTA, and I love them, it was the art and science of, of healing or art and science of something. And I think we focus a lot on the art, and that's very important, like knowing your person, knowing having the good soft skills, that kind of thing, but really understanding the nitty-gritty mechanics of what makes people work and what different movements are, I think is critical. Um, and, and I'll admit, I haven't always been the strongest with that, so that's been a bit of a challenge um, in this process. But uh, So that's what I'm working on. I'm working on a biomechanical analysis of gait for baloney amputees. Um, specifically, I use visual feedback and have them walk on a treadmill and have them do some different really cool things to figure out what happens when they're walking um, on a treadmill with some visual feedback. So that's where I am now. For somebody who may not know what biomechanics means, would oh, you Jesus. please, uh, can you just dumb that down for me? Yes, yeah, so I'm not going to do this <laughs> any justice. And if you're an engineer listening to this or a biomechanist listening to this, please cover your ears and do not at me, bro. <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, <laughs> but really what it is, is, is understanding and defining uh, quantitatively the nitty gritty of movement we'll say, right? So if you're looking at um, gait, for example, a lot of us grew up on the Perry model, which is phenomenal. You got your heel strike and toe off and mid stance, all that other stuff. Great, but what are the kinetics, meaning the forces and the kinematics or joint angles, movement uh, velocities, etc., that are associated with that particular movement, um, whether it's gait or throwing or jumping or whatever the case may be. So. It's a really rough definition, but that's how I like to think of it. Okay, so um, I want to clear it up even maybe more. So if somebody is squatting, yep, right, biomechanics would be kind of what the knee, how it's bending, where the pressure is going, mm -hmm. um, you know, how it's like gliding. And the forces that are associated with it, where those forces are going through the knee, for example, if we're looking at the knee. But also understanding that the, the whole body is probably contributing to that. So what the forces are at the ankle, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, direction of movement, that kind of thing, ankle, knee, hip. Um, it's a little bit more difficult and it's really outside of my realm, but even um, spinal uh, mechanics become really important when you're looking at something under load, especially like a squat. You know what I mean? So that. Yeah. So... Maybe let's like delve into that a little bit. I'm, I'm very curious. This is a good discussion, I think, to have. How much, or let's just say, why would biomechanics matter? Like you say it's very, very important. So why, why would it be important? Yeah, like so what, what can it tell us? If I, which route do you want me to take this here? All the routes, Ooh. every single one. All the routes. So let's see. I mean, in your, in your lens of your research, like what, what are you like, okay, I'm looking at biomechanics, like how could that be helpful to? Yeah, so that's what, that's what, which way I want to try to figure out I want to take this. So we'll look at, we'll look at it from the research perspective. Understanding, for example, below knee amputees, you know, you have an amputation, you, you lose your ankle and foot, you lose the lower part of your leg, right? So what's different? something's going to be different. Why is it different? Can you ever actually walk the way you did when you had two fully intact legs? There's a really interesting argument that goes on about that, um, whether or not you can truly achieve symmetry again. And symmetry means you're using your left and your right mm -hmm. foot equally. And I've heard you actually talk about that on this podcast in the past. So kudos to you for, for doing the symmetry talk. Um, and I can't remember who was on here, but you were talking about symmetry. Yeah, and I was inevitably, like, we're going to go into that. Yeah. Yeah. So can they do that? Well, understanding what happens at the foot and ankle and understanding the mechanics of what happens at the foot and ankle on the lower leg is critical to be, be able to, to design some sort of treatment program, right? So we always tell our amputees, you know, use equal mechanics. Use the right leg the same as you would the left leg, right? Equal step length, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, can they actually do that? And what are the consequences if they do that, right? So if you don't have a functional gastroc muscle that produces a lot of the propulsion or the force generated um, to take a step forward. If you tell somebody to do the same thing with their involved in their, um, their amputated limb with the prosthetic, 
what is the consequence of telling them to do that as far as step length and then force or whatever the case may be. So understanding the biomechanics will definitely impact how you teach and treat an individual patient or client. And if you don't understand it, you don't understand the movement, you don't really know what to tell them to do to maybe alleviate pain, to improve function, whatever the case may be. Yeah, so we have the biomechanics discussion quite a bit, and we'll just call it through the lens of <clears throat> fitness, orthopedics, um, all those things, mm -hmm. right? It's like, how much does biomechanics actually matter, right? You hear probably a lot of stuff from us like, oh man, you hear things like, uh, you can't bend forward at your low back, right? Like yep. it's going to hurt. Like, um, And I think sometimes physical therapists can take that stuff like way too far. Oh, way too far. You know what I mean? Way like, too far. <laughs> like, oh crap, the biomechanics, like they may matter, but mm -hmm. they don't maybe matter as much as we think. You know what I mean? It's not like everything. It's like, I always think it's like this piece of a pie where a PT can come back and be like, never bend forward your back ever again. Right. Like, that's actually probably very bad to know. Yeah, and, and honestly, there was a there was a lot of it that that we hear when we get indoctrinated. And I, I got to give shout out to you and Nate and a lot of guys here, or not just guys, people here that have said we've got to start challenging that old dogma. Like if you have a bad back, never round your back. And I was like, we actually heard that. We were taught that, and we yeah. teach that. And yeah. there are a lot of facilities that still teach. Um, and I understand why, but they teach their employees that when they're doing the, the transfer training, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all of that's true to a certain extent, but if you're not challenging the system in the way that it would move on a daily basis, um, and there's some really funny videos out there, and I think you guys have maybe yeah. sent links to them about like the, how you pick up a carton of milk or whatever oh, was yeah. on the floor. That's like a, a funny video. straight back, deep squat type. Nobody well, already does that, that right? Yeah. So, um, understanding that that there are limits to how deep you want to go with biomechanics and to be honest with you the majority of people don't really care about the minutia of biomechanics is can I do what I want to do and can I do it without hurting and that's our job I think in PT is to make sure that they understand there is a way that you can do them and you can do them without hurting yeah. to really optimize and maximize your quality of life or do whatever it is that you want to do so yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like I like to use it as a guide mm -hmm. and as a framework to help people, you know, uh, move efficiently or move pain-free, but it's just like everything else, it gets so complicated. It's like so context specific and like biomechanics can change, right? Like we thought, I don't, uh, you may know this better than I do, but it's like, oh, we always thought that the shoulder rolled and glide a certain way and all of a sudden we realized actually did not glide forward as you moved, as lift your hand up. Like, you know what I mean? That stuff can change literally all the time. And as soon as you think you know everything, mm -hmm. that's the only thing I care about, like you realize that actually you know nothing. So it's Well, like, yeah, and it, it is gonna change as, as more and more research becomes more available and we just start to get a better understanding for what's happening. We do the best with what we can now. So I don't think there's anything five, 10 years ago when you and I were in school even then 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago, that it was like, listen, this is this is what we knew. And that's fine, that's what we knew. Let's update it because now we have new information. Um, and, and I think that's gonna happen. The other thing that we have to be careful about is what makes a physical therapist a physical therapist, right? So when we talk about our level of expertise and we're a doctorate level profession at this point, um, making sure that we are speaking and using terms that actually reflect our level of training and education. So, and it's not to disparage any other profession out there, but we have to figure out how we're setting ourselves apart. And it can't be with, oh, we'll just do 20 jumping jacks just because you're going to do 20 jumping jacks. That's not really what you want to do. So what what is it about physical therapy? Um, and my engineer mentor said this many years ago, um, the, the word physics, at least the root physics, is almost inherently in physical therapy. So if you don't understand the physics, i.e. the biomechanics of what you're doing and why somebody's not doing well or could get better, what are, what are we really doing as a profession? I, I think that's a very important conversation to have and I think we're literally in the midst, physical therapy in general, maybe even possibly medicine, are in the midst of an identity crisis. Like, you know, PT in general, like I can ask probably 20 physical therapists, like, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And I'll probably get 20 different answers, which 
I think, is that like, you think that's common in other professions? Like a dentist probably knows like what they do or like a doctor or a massage therapist, but maybe not. Maybe it's just like everywhere. It's like, well, we do this. We're movement based. No, we're educators. No, you know what I mean? We just do, we treat passive modalities and help people get out of pain. It's like, uh, yeah, have a unified definition. (laughs) Like it's interesting. So that's, oh God. Okay. So I have a personal opinion on this and then I have my kind of professional scapta president out in public opinion. Um, but I will say... Can we merge the two? And I, yeah, so I'm going to try to figure out what to merge the two. I will say that your your statement is spot on that the variance that is demonstrated in clinical practice in the field of physical therapy right now is sometimes astounding, right? Where you get some some practitioners that are doing things that... You and I, I'd say most PTs are just like, that That does not constitute physical therapy. That is passive. That is, what are you doing and why are you doing it? You're making a bad name for physical therapy. Then you've got the other side where people are really trying to push the boundaries, and I think appropriately so, of defining physical therapy and defining what um, constitutes treatment that's within the realm of the skill set of the physical therapist and really doing really innovative things. So you've got those two huge broad spectrums along with the idea that we have a ton of evidence but for certain specific things like there's a ton of evidence on the treatment of low back pain and a ton of researchers that are working on the treatment of low back pain Um, if you go the if you pick another diagnosis um, let's just say physical therapy interventions for a rare neurological disorder well they're rare but we're still going to see for example those kids what's the evidence for that we know we have to do stuff, but sometimes we don't know what that is. And so we're just, I think, as a profession trying to figure out what that is. And it's all appropriate. Um, so the variation is really wide. And things like our, our database that we're trying to do with APTA, this giant clinical database, and I'm blanking on the name right now, and they'll be so mad at me. Uh, we're trying to sort of narrow that down to really to really be able to say, okay, this is ideal practice of physical therapy for this diagnosis. Yeah, like a clinical patient. guide. Mm-hmm. There was like a, oh man, I'm going to Yeah, don't tell. There's a, there was a guide that we got, <laughs> MUSC, like yeah, I remember that's... they told us like, oh, you need to use this guide. I used yeah. it kind of in the beginning. I mean, I'm doing less clinical work, so maybe that's my out, but you know, um, and I refer to it every once in a while. I was like, okay, like what do I do here? Even if nothing else to kind of confirm that I was on the, yep. on the right path every once in a while. Like, okay. So that still exists, guide yeah. to PT practice. Yes, that's still exactly. out there. Yep. Um, they released the, Third, I don't remember which version it is. I'm going to say third. Um, I want to say a handful of years ago now, and it's all electronic. So that big teal book that we used to get that mm-hmm. was all paper, yeah. now is all electronic. So you can go on and you can look this stuff up and you can get a feel for kind of what are some of the common treatments, how long does it normally take to, to improve function within um, a certain diagnosis. So that's there. Um, but what we're also trying to do, back to the variation of practice, is sort of not justify um, but provide more evidence to why physical therapy works we all know it works but why and how and what's realistic when we go and we speak to legislators or insurance companies which I know that's the bad word here but if you're going (laughs) to speak to an insurance company nowadays you have to have data right Um, and that's what the the um, database is hoping to do is get information from around the country from a variety of different clinicians and different practice settings to say here's here's what it looks like and then it gives you benchmarks against you know either your competitors or people within your facility to say hey Aaron you're actually seeing an ankle sprain for 20 visits that's obnoxious and not necessary Mm -hmm. Um, you need to bring that in you need to improve your clinical outcomes that kind of thing so I'm gonna have to look up the name of this database because it's I have a t-shirt and everything. Oh, registry. The registry through APTA. Okay. Got it. So, yeah. It's all good. (laughs) I mean, I'm obviously a big fan of the physical therapy profession. Like, ever since a big impact very early on my life, knew I want to be a physical therapist forever. And I continue to know that we are, I say this all the time, we're perfectly positioned to help the country, the world, whatever, yeah. with a lot of the problems that occur today, right? And not that anybody else couldn't help them too, but like we just have like a really cool skill set. It's like you kind of merge, in my opinion, this medical background, really understanding red flags and how to triage and kind of 
what, um, how to prioritize things, evaluate, diagnose, all those things, which is super, super powerful. And then we're kind of like movement-based and the ability to treat like pain, which is like affecting their daily life. And it's just like, not what else is there, but like the ability to kind of move and like walk, like it's just so important. And it's like, when you can kind of merge those two worlds together and give somebody like access to those things, like, man, like uh, why aren't we just leveraging the crap out of just that yeah you so, know and saying and like we're I'll here even, for this i'll even build on that so everything that you're saying is exactly true and then we're also seeing is we do that really well on an individual level and we're starting to see and i think we've seen this for a little while but more and more pts doing that on a community level right so where you're looking at population health and really trying to understand how to make a whole community of people move and improve what their health might be so yes we can take the medical model and we can take um, the health and fitness model and and take that on an individual level, but also say we've got to figure out what that looks like for everyone, for example, in the Charleston area, right? And really take into account all of the different um, socioeconomic and demographic factors that might impact somebody's ability to even have access to quality treatment or what, what have you. I think we're really well positioned for that. And to be quite honest with you, there are a lot of disciplines out there I think who could also do that but I think we're also uniquely trained in that we interact with people and communities on a regular basis and we're, we're good at that it's what we do there are very few PTs I would say that are are bad with people there's some but there are very few that are genuinely bad with people oh 100% like um, our our ability to communicate on a one-on-one -on -one setting is probably I mean, I think, I think I've seen some data. There's not many. I think like a social worker or a psychotherapist mm. of some kind is the only person that spends kind of one or more time. So you hone that skill. I mean, yeah. if nothing else, you're getting it by immersion yep. over and over and over and over and over again. Yep. No, I, I totally agree on the community-based stuff on multiple levels. One is my our practice, non-insurance-based, right, um, has completely leveraged ingraining ourselves in the community. It's the only reason we're thriving. Mm -hmm. It has actually nothing to do with anything besides that. This is the only reason. We educate, we do workshops, we create relationships in the community, and it's the only reason we are where we are at today. So, like, I completely agree with that. Um, and it's just, there's so many, like, I mean, just take, like, obesity. Take any cardiovascular disease. Like, what's the, like, easiest, most cost-efficient way to help people out of that? Mm-hmm. Right, it's yeah. like education, movement. You know what I mean, like lifestyle changes. Yep. Right, and like we're the ones to do. Like you, you could spend uh, once a week, two to three times a week for six to eight weeks with a physical therapist. Like imagine the impact you could have on people. And so it's like I still think like where's the future of our profession? And I and I get it. For a lot of people, it's super scary right now. Like with a lot of stuff that's changed with Medicare and insurance reimbursement <laughs> and like yeah. hospital-owned physical therapy, especially in the outpatient world. Yeah. But now in skilled nursing too, which all the stuff that happened there. So people are semi-freaking out. And I still think what you what you and I are talking about this kind of like population health, community health, whether you're taking it from my angle or you're taking it from like literally like mm -hmm. changing it at a like political level. Yep. Like that is just, I think a huge facet of where our profession can grow and position ourselves where like that's our thing right like yeah and i think i think we're never going to be immune i think as a profession to um the whimsy of the legislature was i like what a way i like to think about it sometimes we never really know why they're going to cut i think it's important that we stay true to who we are um, while trying to make sure that we're focusing on the individual and the population and that health is a big thing um and it's it, my personal preference is make sure that we're taking care of the people. Um, if you spent every day serving the people of your community with your gift, let's just say that's physical therapy, that will always shine through, right? If you're focused every day on what your profit margins are, that's going to come and go. Somebody's going to catch on to that and they're going to cut it. You can never take away just the love of taking care of an individual, right? And so we as physical therapists, I think, are are prime to do that and and you know you, we're gonna we're gonna have cuts but as long yeah. as we continue to love what we do um, and understand sometimes it's gonna be tough sometimes it's gonna be feast sometimes it's gonna be famine and even when there are no cuts if you're in an inpatient rehab facility if census is down census is down and that sucks because then what are you gonna do then you got to start having days off etc 
Um, outpatient, same thing. If census is down, you know what, bud? You just don't come in today. That's yeah. kind of what it is. Yeah. So it, it will, we'll survive. Ultimately, we'll survive. We'll figure out what it looks like. Um, PTA cost, cost inferentials or payment differentials, same thing. We'll, we'll figure out how to survive in whatever this new market might be. Um, we're, we're a resilient profession, and I think we're here for the right reason. And it's not to take advantage, and it's not to just be a, a, a niche per se. It's really because we have the ability, and I think as a profession, capacity to take care of a lot of things on a really big scale. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, what I think people need to realize, and we can almost leave uh, the physical therapy educational system kind of aside, is that you have control more control than you think. Like mm-hmm. I, we talk, talk about victim or growth mindset, right? Yep. Like yep. things are changing, cool. Yep. Change the model, do something different, yep. right? Like you can absolutely take control back in your hands yep. um, and leverage your, we talked about leverage your degree in different ways, create a uh, different kind of business model, kind of like we have. There's still kind of options out there. You know I think I mean? there are, and I think there are a lot of options that haven't even been explored yet. I mean, if you, I think if, if clinicians now, I'll say are more seasoned clinicians, if they would think of when they first graduated from PT school, and I'm talking about maybe not picking on them, but if we'll point out those that, that are closer to retirement age, there's no way at that time they could say, oh, this is what PT is going to look like in 2019 coming up to 2020. Um, we've undergone so many different transformations, and I think we'll continue to do so. That's just, that's the nature of it. Think, yeah, um, think about our profession. Where we, I remember like there was one... Uh, I think her name was Erica. She was at MUSC, mm-hmm. and when she graduated, she had a like certificate. Mm-hmm. Like so, we've gone in the span of we'll call it sixty years, maybe mm-hmm. maybe more. Like mm-hmm. from certificate to associates, bachelor's, master's, doctorate. Like yeah. that's really really like we're still a very young profession. I think people need to. I mean, we are. Well. So we've got our centennial. APTA has our centennial. That's hundred years of being an association coming up in twenty twenty one. Um, I actually saw the date the other day. I think it's January 15th or something like that. It's when we were actually founded. Um, and dues at that time were like $2, right? So it's, yeah. it's interesting. So as we're preparing to celebrate our centennial, there's been a lot of growth within 100 years. Um, and we did start as the, the Reconstruction Aids. And sort of to see where we are now, our forefathers in the profession, if you will, never would have guessed this is where we would be. Yeah. Think about how much we've grown. It could have been really bad too yeah. like we could yeah. still you know what I mean like and we've survived stuff I mean balanced yeah. budget act back in the, the the late 90s was really tough for a lot of folks and um, PT was it was difficult to find a job I remember right? when I as I vividly remember this I'm in high school and I think a physical therapist comes in I think I've already knew I wanted to be one but they're like uh, I don't know exactly what happened this could be a dream within a dream right <laughs> but um, uh, lady came in she talked about how great the profession was she was making six figures, like super easy. Like, you know, we talked about this charging a lot of money just to mm-hmm. put ice packs on people. It was like oh. the heyday for the profession. And then. I wouldn't even say that was the heyday. Because that's the funny thing is, heyday like, financially, from a profit standpoint. Which was so terrible. It when was you look terrible. At it, I it was agree. like, part of it's like, okay, now we deserve to have all the crazy crap that's happening to us now. Right. Because of that, right? right. So I think there's a little bit of self-regulation. Sorry to cut no, you off. No, I agree. No, I agree. I mean, it's, it's happening in a lot of professions. We can look at the orthopedic mm-hmm. surgical profession and how yeah. that's changing too. But no, I agree. Like, but it's just interesting. And then by the time I got out, like, you know, you came out of school and like, you know, uh, Charleston is a little bit different, but like, you know, 50K was kind of like the norm for like a new grad. It's like, well, that's way different mm-hmm. than what I was told when I decided to kind of go in their profession. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's, yeah. you know, uh, it's a whole nother discussion. I don't want to get into it. Just, but <laughs> the amount of student debt and like our, our debt to income ratio, which is just absolutely a travesty. Oh, but, God. You know, but, Listen, I'm glad to be back in school right now because I get to defer these student loans. I might go back for another degree just to keep deferring <laughs> these student, student loans. It's yeah. a whole mortgage payment. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 absolutely insane, and part of that's my own fault. And I I, um, I tell any person who's interested in PT school, you have to be financially savvy. Know what you're doing mm-hmm. before you do it. Don't borrow a dime unless you have a plan to pay it yeah. off and understand what that's going to mean long term. Um, and I grew up in a, a good financial uh, guidance with my mother. She she was very strict, but I got to grad school and was just like loans. That seems easy. Yeah. And I'm I'm definitely definitely uh, 
paying the price for that now. Yeah, so, have but anyway, yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, it's it's something that's not just obviously isolated in our profession. It's you know, yeah. a cultural thing as well, as far yeah. as you know, America in general. So, but we've come a long way. I mean, the the association is really excited about celebrating the centennial next year, and there there are going to be opportunities. So, if you're if you're a PT in the area and you're listening, you want to be you know you want to celebrate with us. We'd love to have you. Um, We'll, we'll try to get as much as we can posted on our, our website, scapta.org. That's where we still are. And then you can always check with APTA because it's a, it's a big undertaking. They're going to have lots of stuff. There are galas. There are celebrations. There are um, things that I think we're even doing with, I think, with the VA, I think, next year. So it's, it's exciting. It's a cool time to, to, to be a PT even with the, the looming proposed cuts. So. I could not agree more. Yeah. I mean, the amount of... Well, uh, these performance-based cash PTs from where they were when I first started this practice four years ago and where it is now. Maybe yeah. A thousand percent growth conservatively, like an insane amount. And it's, yeah. this is a viable business model. Just see it grow. And you're right, just like in ge- general, like more direct access, like there's still a whole other conversation about PTs saying like, is the APTA membership worth it? I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think if you want to support a profession, you want to support direct access, I mean, that's the way you need to grow. Um, at a minimum, you can afford to pay for it. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. I have mm-hmm. some other people who would disagree with me and that's fine, right? But um, I don't know about you, but I want unlimited direct access to South Carolina and I'm not gonna go do that. So I'm more than <laughs> happy to pay for my money to give to help you do that in any way that I can. Well, yeah, and that's, I still, even as a president, I still pay my dues every year. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fight and we fight for the viability of our profession, um, long-term, short-term and long-term. And, to me, even if different people are members for different reasons, and to me, and maybe I just haven't experienced not being a member because I haven't since I was a student, I've just been a member constantly, and I just can't envision a scenario in which I can't pick up my professional association that is connected throughout the country and honestly has connections internationally and just simply ask a question, and they will answer it for me because I'm a member. Um, I can reach out to my state association and say, hey, uh, guys, I don't understand what's happening with this payment model. And we have experts all around the state um, that, that are associated with our professional association. And as a member, they can call us and we will answer their questions. Um, and you're talking about renowned payment experts here in South Carolina. And to be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, I don't understand what this cut means for me or my business or whatever it might be. I don't know how you'd survive without that content, without that information. Because otherwise, you're going to have to try to interpret hundreds of pages of Medicare statutes. Good luck. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Best of luck to you. (laughs) (laughs) And there are people who are specifically trained to do that and communicate with them to understand what that language is. I mean, even if you don't want to do the advocacy stuff, understand it. It's what's going to keep you in business. And being able to understand what's happening. is ultimately, I think it's what will help you have a thriving business in the long term. What do you think is going to happen, like in the next, if you have an opinion on this, like in the next five to ten years? Like, what's the trajectory of. going to be, like, of our profession, or of like where things are kind of going to go? Like, it's it's interesting. It's like it feels like a very very blank slate. You know what I mean? I know we can kind of create our own destiny, but. Um, I'm just curious. Like, I have my own thoughts, but um, I'm curious what you, what you think. I mean, as you have a beat on things that probably a lot of other people don't as far as being on the, we'll call it the political side of things. Is that what yeah, you would say? Like, yeah, Like, slide. And then even just, like, being an APTA, you just have a certain beat on yeah. what things are. I would say that our profession is going to be faced with some very difficult decisions, right? Um, I think, and that's good. To me, whenever you're faced with a decision, it's a good thing. It's an opportunity to grow, right? Changes, for me, change isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be very uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Um, there is a lot of discussion, and there has been in the past, but there's discussion again about what the educational model looks like for the PT. We've been doing the same thing for a long time. Yeah. Should we be or should we change that? I've seen little musings of things changing. Yeah. Right, and yeah. so if you look at a really big change, what happens with that big change? It's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. Um, what's the status of our practice and how we are um, treating patients on an individual day-to-day um, basis? What does that look like in the next five years? The, the level of productivity standards that you're seeing 
while important that we make sure that we're, we're productive, is that reasonable, is that viable, given the fact that we're seeing an increase, and I don't have data for it, but an increase in burnout, um, an increase in um, really difficulty with keeping people in the profession and engaged full-time in the profession. Um, I think we're gonna have some opportunities in the next five to 10 years to, to make some changes. They're going to be very, very difficult. Um, what those are yet, I think we'll see probably more changes on the educational side than anything. Yeah. Because that's the thing that hasn't moved um, significantly in a long time. Certainly the increase in the, the level of training, but when we talk about credit creep, when we talk about the price of education, when we talk about um, reimbursement and salaries and that kind of stuff, it's all, it's all coming to a head. Um, and sometimes it takes a really ugly, nasty catalyst to, to get things to change, but I would say maybe that's coming. Yeah, it's a good place to start, in my opinion. I mean, what I people ask me, like, go to PT school, like, what is it for? And I'm like, it's really good at helping you pass the physical therapy licensure. Exam. <laughs> like, that's what it's really good for. You know what I mean? Like, um, there's other benefits, of yeah. course. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, like, what I would like to see more is more strength conditioning stuff, you know. Um, and I also would like to see more, like, business and sales um, kind of training, obviously, right? Like... We yeah, and everybody's going to have that, that bias, right? So that's obviously, it would make sense that that's what would come from you. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And to be, to be honest, there might not be that um, level of content in the current curriculum, but there's so much that the educators are trying to pack into a curriculum. And this is not at all to vilify educators because the educators are doing a phenomenal job I love of packing in a ton of content even on the didactic uh, didactic side, because you don't really know what's going to be on the boards. I mean, anything could be on the boards. So you got to prepare students for everything under the sun. Mm -hmm. um, and for a student, sometimes that feels like you're drinking from a fire hose when you're in the classroom. And but sometimes that's that's right? kind of what that's kind of what it is. Yeah. And when you think of how much we're learning versus. Um, some of the people that we're sitting at the table with, we have to make sure that we're really honest and saying that we know a lot and we've been educated on a lot and we're informed about a lot of different aspects, um, even all the way down to and including some of the genetics, genomics kind of conversations that we're talking about. The regenerative, med med regenerative medicine, I think your most, the, the 80th one I think that you did was on yeah. regenerative medicine. I was oh, listening to that awesome. one yep. this morning and yesterday. So that kind of stuff we've, we've got to know. Right, um, so I don't know. We'll we'll see where we go. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm but excited certainly, regardless. Certainly, saying everybody has to know a whole lot more about everything doesn't seem like it's a model that's going to to work out really long term. Um, so I don't know. I think they're doing a great job of trying to pack in more, um, with being respectful with the credit limitations are and all this other stuff that you yeah. get in the governing body so I don't know yeah. we're totally going on a tangent but yeah. I love it I mean <laughs> what I, I think it's natural and it seems to be happening regardless you can deny or nor, you know, maybe confirm as well but um, that just more autonomy right just our ability to be able to kind of like you know again with more direct access yep. we should be able to like um, you know us to be in uh, higher positions in hospitals, things like that. Like it's just, it's cool to see that we're pushing towards that. I, I feel like it makes sense to push towards that. Like yeah. we can control our own destiny where before, you know, you had to have a script and you couldn't do anything without a script. And now you, it's just a lot more flexibility when it comes to that. Yeah, I think certainly in our profession, that's, that's the goal is to increase that, that autonomy. And if, you know, this is, I don't know, I, this isn't my scap to hat on. So let's pretend that, well, I, it's kind of on, kind of off. I can understand why someone would say, well, why do why does everybody have to have so much autonomy? Because then it's like, who's doing what? And just coordinating that becomes difficult. Mm -hmm. I always push back and say, well, you have a phone and you have a fax machine, you have a computer, you've got all different ways of communicating with one another. Um, EMR is a thing. You can certainly figure out what people are doing or if you have a question, um, you can certainly communicate with people. So I understand the fear of all professions wanting full autonomy because then no one knows what anybody is doing, right? So trying to figure out how people can be autonomous, practice at the type, top of their license, but everything be coordinated is the thing that I don't think is a system we have quite figured out. And I think the thought was, um, I loved 44, loved Obama. The thought when he did um, a lot of the healthcare legislation was that EMR was probably gonna be the thing that was gonna change that. 
because then people could practice and the EMR was going to bring it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, electronic medical records, EMR was going to yep. bring all that together. Um, and now it's again, as a clinician, if you're on an EMR, you're as a clinician drinking from a water fountain from tons of information that everybody's putting into an EMR. Right. And so synthesizing that and making it make sense is, is, is difficult, but yeah. Anyway, tangent. Yeah, I mean, there's just two sides to any coin. Like, how effectively is a hospital, which probably would be arguably not less autonomous, right? Like, there's really a tiered system there. Who does what and how mm-hmm. things go. And, like, everybody's in close quarters. Like, it's not like that's, like, the most amazing system ever. Like, right. you know, I'm always going to be, I'm a, we'll call it a capitalist or a survivalist at mm-hmm. heart. Like, people that do well and communicate well are going to rise to the top. And then people that don't, don't. Yep. And, like... We push for a ton of communication. We get like typically zero back. Like, yeah. I push stuff out to MDs. This is what we're doing. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And like usually I'll get zero response. It's yeah. just crazy to me. Like people are just too busy. I guess like they don't want, you know, they don't want to do what's best for the patient. That's cool. All right, yeah. fine. Yeah. People but, figure out how to survive, and you've mentioned it twice. Mindset, and I know you've talked about that on this this podcast too. That mindset book, it is. It's a really good book, um, and I've. Personally, this is a, another personal tangent. If you take the, mi- the the book and the tenets of what they're doing from the mindset book and you listen to, it's really rough to listen to, so it's not necessarily for kids, but if you listen to kind of the basic tenets of Gary Vee and what he does and how he just pushes out, like, stop being a baby and just go do it. Yep. Like, time is of the essence. Time is the only thing you can't get more of. You've got to be able to take risks. Um, and sort of a Tony Robbins approach and you take all of those and you smash it together, survivors are going to survive and it's what's going to happen. I think as a professional profession, we're a profession that's going to survive. We've been through tough times and we will continue to figure out what this looks like because we have so much to offer. We're not in one little small box, which coincidentally makes it really difficult for people to sometimes understand who we are and what we do and then even for us to define very succinctly who we are and what we do as a profession and where we fit in because it's like we're uh everything everywhere all the time but it's also the thing that you can't really do so anyway no that was a well that was actually well thought out that makes a a ton of sense it's just like anything else there's two sides of the coin there's a lot of benefits to that but there's always going to be drawbacks just like just like our model right like we we may have a lot of autonomy we may be able to you know treat people for however we want to be treated and like see them for long periods of time but getting new people in our doors is, is an insane challenge. Right. It takes a lot of time and energy and it's a lot very difficult and there's uncertainty here as well. Yeah. So, um, no man, that's, that, that stuff's really, uh, that's super interesting. So, um, let's do, uh, a couple shout outs to you. If people want to learn more about you, learn more about SCAPTA, how do they get involved? Where can they find stuff? Shoot, I, gotta, um, I want to ask you a question too. But... Oh, do you can ask me a question? All right, so, we got time. Because I've, I've been thinking about this and this is okay. one of the things. So I love the model and I've listened to a lot of the podcasts and you've had some, you've had some really cool um, fitness coaches. You've had some really cool um, uh, nutrition folks on mm-hmm. and they are, are doing their best to give information and content to people who otherwise can't really um, access it right so here's my I don't want to say challenge because I'm putting I'm literally putting you on the spot here so <laughs> we'll see how I respond <laughs> we'll see <what> <laughs> I had a lot um, of coffee so, so okay. we, when we talk about like healthy Charleston there's a lot of what we look at the healthy Charleston and the medical and wellness space tends to be healthy Charleston that has access and affluence, mm-hmm. right? So what are we doing to make Charleston as a whole healthy? And that includes barrier, barrier islands, excuse me, Kichigola populations, those are lower socioeconomic status, underserved minority populations. What are we doing and what can we do to sort of reach out to them with the models that maybe we have in place or developing new models to say, hey, yeah, we might not understand this in this community and in this culture, but here's how it benefits the community and the culture. Um, because there's a lot of really good information out here, but it sometimes feels like it's not getting to the people who actually need it the most. And a lot of times that's the underserved and, and indigent and minority populations of Charleston that a lot of times are are forgotten about. It's what it feels like to me. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. I mean... People, um, I feel there's multiple thoughts. I would say the first one is a lot of people 
in our profession would look at what we're doing from a private pay cash standpoint and say that we're frankly like greedy. Why are you taking all the money? You should be giving out this stuff for free. And I'm, I'm fine with that. What, what they don't understand though is because of what we're doing, we can now better serve our community. We probably do more community-based stuff, right? And maybe not in the communities you're talking about, but community-based stuff than I ever did in a private practice. Mm -hmm. We also do at a minimum four to five, what we call scholarship or pro bono sessions every single week, nice. right? Which is which is a big percentage of that. Um, so we can use these resources in order to get back. So I think that's like one version of yep. it, right? And for us, it's always finding out how we can target those things, mm -hmm. you know? And And this is, I think, a deeper discussion and it's yeah. a really cool discussion I have. I think the best way to get to those areas is through edu education, okay. right? Is to educate them as to what better eating is, how important movement is, you know, what I don't understand, and I probably need to research more, is how can we get to those communities so that they'll, they'll actually listen, right? Yeah. Like they have access to this podcast, but no, they're probably not gonna listen to this right. podcast, right? right? So how can I get my information and package it in a way that somebody like that will actually create change, right? right? I'm gonna go to places where I know I can create change. That's just right. A, because that's impactful, and B, yes, because those people actually come see me and pay me money, mm -hmm. right? But if I was able to go there and I knew, because I'm driven more by impact and probably freedom of time than I am by money. Yeah. So like, I'll go there if I can make a big impact. That's probably the scary part for me is like, what do I need to do or how do you package thing? And I think that's creating alliances in that community. Yeah. But again, that's how, that's how we've done those things. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question to ask. You know I mean, what I mean? It's, and I'm not I'm not native Charlestonian myself, mm -hmm. but when you look at Charleston, there's a there's a really big divide, and it's a really sad and unfortunate divide between kind of the haves and the have-nots a lot of times, and whatever the case may be. And I I I think even as a profession, and if I figure out the best way to do it, because I don't I don't have the answer to that question I just asked you, mm -hmm. um, is figuring out how to push through that friction to try to build these alliances and to really say, hey, there is a way to actually have a healthy Charleston that includes all members of Charleston. Because if we in Charleston figure out how to do that in one of the oldest places that still has like a slave market building downtown Charleston with the cobblestone streets and all of the, the history that we have here, if we figure out how to do that, um, I think that's a model that can be certainly broad, broadcast across the country to say you can figure out how to cross these divides. Um, and it's not just a made to move and scap to situation. It's a it's an all of us figure out how to take care of each other kind of thing is what I'm was what I'm trying to get at. So there's no wrong answer to that. I think yeah. Really no, it's just I mean, the, the cool part is that we can actually have these conversations, you know, um, and try to move forward. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like the, the, the conversation needs to happen. Yeah. That would be the first step. No, I, I would, um, we may not, we may not go on down that tangent, but I would agree. Like, so I'm, you know what I mean? I, my parents are from Switzerland. So, and I was born and raised here. So mm -hmm. I have an extremely unique perspective Absolutely. of, of what Charleston is like, like not a typical Southerner kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, I would agree that there, there is, um, I mean, Daniel Island would be a, a perfect example of just, you know, and, and, my entire life growing up, it was very much like James Island versus West Island. Like if you came from a certain place, like mm -hmm. you didn't talk to, like it's, mm -hmm. and it's still alive and well. I don't know if it's because of bridges or mental mindset or just how things are, but um, <laughs> Who it's, knows, man? yeah, it's, uh, know. it's interesting. But I, I mean, I, again, I believe that it's the education and it's the community based stuff that, yeah. that can make the big difference in getting to, you know, people who are influencers and getting them to, you know, disseminate that information. But yeah, I, yeah, I think I that's know. part of it. Was. And I, I have to do a better job of, and I'm realizing this, I scrolled through the, I didn't get through all 80, but I was looking at who's been on the podcast and who hasn't been on the podcast and then thinking about who really does, is in the, the space with like Healthy Charleston. And, and I haven't heard him on a while, I heard him on in a while and I have to make sure he's still okay. Um, Dr. Thaddeus John Bell always used to do all the commercials and they were a bunch of commercials targeting specifically African-Americans and chronic diseases and how we need to manage these things and make sure we're getting checkups. Um, he might be a good person to help us, I'll say us, because I'm involved in this journey, mm. figure out how we bridge that gap 
and figure out how we get into the space to really start communicating with populations that absolutely could benefit from um, understanding movement and nutrition and health and how it could absolutely change their world. Right. It's not just it's not just the suburban moms anymore. It's not just the weekend warriors. It's really it's an everybody type of thing. And if we get everybody involved, I think we could see a really different um, looking Charleston than maybe what we see today. Yeah. So. I mean, that's that's about big impact because it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's really cool for me to come in and somebody who's running marathons, get them to run two or three marathons. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. But have somebody who is unable literally to walk to their mailbox and back. You know, and is unable, um, has a um, tremendously high glucose levels, right, yeah. and blood pressure, and be able to make an impact that way. Like, that's really cool. Too, yeah, and get them right? to do it, and get them to see everybody in the neighborhood. Like, oh, okay, and she's she's out there doing it. I can get out there right. and do it. And, and there's just cost-effective ways to do stuff absolutely. like that. Like, whether it's group-based or, like I said, educational-based or, like you know, today with social media. And mm -hmm. Again, there's a ton of free information out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Cool. Well, you still have to give the shout out. I do. How do people get involved with SCAPTA? How do they find out more about you or maybe your research or if they want to reach out? How would they do that? Absolutely. So um, I don't really know the best way to do that. Everybody comes on and says, well, here's my website. Here's my, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't have any yeah, of those. Yeah, I mean, things. the SCAPTA so, website could be so, a good start. Yeah, SCAPTA is SCAPTA.org, APTA if you're a PT. Uh, be a member. If you have questions about it, being a member. Um, you can reach out to me directly. Um, I think one of the things that I also realized, and I kind of meditated about this. Um, I didn't tell my wife, so it's going to be a surprise to her when she listens to the podcast. I have no issue with people contacting me directly. Like my email is aembry, A-E-M-B-R-Y, P-T, at gmail.com. Email me straight off. If you don't have email, but you have, if you're listening to this and you have a question, you can call me or you can text me. My personal cell phone is 864 Three five six seven seven eight four. Um, cool thing about iPhones, I can block you if you're crazy, but you know, whatever. Contact me, reach out to me. Um, if you heard something that you liked, you didn't like, you want to be involved in, in some kind of way, feel free. Um, as far as research studies, everything is IRB approved, so I have some flyers um, around. Technically, I'm not allowed to advertise, but um, yeah, you can you can email me and I'll I'll tell you more about it. And that's my personal email address. Um, but yeah. Cool. That's where we are, man. Yeah, this is a good. This is a an awesome discussion, and I just want to like invite anybody who maybe you have uh, a guest or somebody that's like out there that could be on, or like a community that you maybe want us to get involved in. Like, reach out to us via social media. Reach out to Aaron. Like, um, we're always looking for ways to to be able to impact our local community um, in a positive way. So. Thanks for being on, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate this is, it. This is a good one. Yeah, All right. Thanks, man. All right. See you. Take care. What's up, everybody? Eve here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Charleston Podcast. If you did, we would love for you to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. And please leave us any comments. We're always looking to improve or recommend a guest. Yes, we take recommendations. Also, if you want to learn a little bit more about us, and our health and human performance clinic where we do physical therapy and performance training, please go check out madetomovept.com. Again, that's made, the number two, movept.com. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.